Folklands. Created, written and presented by Justin Chubb and Tim Downey. Episode 7, Witch Country, Part 2. Hi, my name's Justin Chubb and together with my writer-performer friend Tim Downey, we're off on a trip around the UK to explore folklore, myths and legends. Welcome back to part two of our delve into the dark past of Mistley Manningtree and the notorious witch trials of the 1640s that took place there. An era of superstition and religious fervour in a country torn apart by civil war. You join us on day two of our visit to the small, pretty estuary town, fresh from a night in the Thorn Inn, once home to Matthew Hopkins and the site of his disturbing trials of the many unfortunate women who soon went on to a horrifying death. After a hearty breakfast, Tim and I were joined by composer and performer Laura Cannell, whose work often draws on folkloric tradition and evokes natural sounds, landscapes and echoes of history. Recording in site-specific atmospheric locations, the acoustic echoey spaces of towers, churches, lighthouses, Laura uses unusual techniques when performing on the violin and recorder and mixes elements of early music, folk, classical and improvised explorations to create her unique sound. Her many albums include 2014's Quick Sparrows Over the Black Earth, Simultaneous Flight Movement and, more recently, These Feral Lands, Volume 1, recorded during lockdown with other musicians and writers, including the comedian Stuart Lee. Laura joined us on a cold, chilly morning to wander down the estuary to the imposing Mistley Towers, armed with her instruments. We've got the keys to the tower. Oh, cool. Yeah. cool. Yeah. So we could take a little wander down there. You can set up. We can have a little chat yeah, about yeah. stuff. Yeah. Have a bit of music and just... Yeah. 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 Let's have a fun adventure. Exactly. So these are Mistley Towers. They're really extraordinary buildings, aren't they? Was there a church between these two towers? It was knocked down, apparently. It was knocked down, yeah. Mm. Apparently this is also the place that Hopkins is buried. Oh, this is it? Somewhere here. Might even be under the road. There's a strange other place, Rabness, a bit further down, just really on the edge. I thought he was buried there, but... Mistley want him claimed. Themselves. But why? Well, there's a funny thing, isn't there, that they're sort of celebrating this in a way. It's part of the only identity that Mistley and Manning treat yeah. have, I suppose. So there's a sort of weird thing of celebrating and also kind of trying to make the past good in some way. I grew up here and then I lived in London and some other places and then sort of gravitated back. But I never really knew until I was looking up a little bit. I didn't know he was actually here, like right here. How much did they publicise? It's probably very <laughs> uneasy, I would think. Although we were told that the sign Mistley is Hopkins. It's strange to have the focus on that and not the women. Like if you go to Salem, the focus is on the witches. Yeah. Witches in inverted commas. Yeah, yeah. Not the murderers. That's so backwards, isn't it? It is. <laughs> but we did see a plaque yesterday, didn't we, that commemorates the women that died. Oh, only, they only put that up earlier in the year. Things oh, take time. God. I can't remember which one sounds the best. 
I think we have to do both. Let's have a look. This is rather a good sepulchre kind of fairy ring. Yeah, well, I did some of... research about fairy rings. But yes. you know the folklorist Jennifer Westwood? Yes. I think I said about yes. the penguin, the law of the land. One of my jobs as a research assistant was to go and follow up all of her leads about fairy rings and how they're formed. And there were loads of letters backwards and forwards in the really, really interesting gentleman's magazine. <laughs> they really slow conversations with one man going, Oh, do you know how this fairy ring appeared? And another man going, I believe it was a cow patch. But it took about six years to, <laughs> to actually get to, to that, get to that point. Yeah. So we're looking at a quite an extraordinary, almost futuristic looking tomb, isn't it? It's grey yeah. stone. It's got air holes. Almost like a Space 1999 airlock door. And just in front of the tomb is a lovely kind of patch of fairy mushrooms. So now we're going into one of the two mistly towers, which are quite extraordinary pluralistic buildings that look a little bit Hawksmoor, Nicholas Hawksmoor. Is that the person that designed them? Well, in Was London, it? there are these churches that Is mix it? lots of like different types White of architecture. Chair. No, not White There's one in Spitalfields, yeah, Spitalfields and in Deptford. Are they follies then, really? Weren't they part of the church, like the transepts? Oh, we're in. OK, after you, Laura. <laughs> Ooh! Okay, we're now entering the space. We're looking up at a beautiful olive green ceiling with a sunburst image, almost like a Freemason's image. In gold, there's a triangle and there's a letter A in the middle of a kind of circular emblem in in the centre of the design. Alpha and Omega, God. He is the Alpha and Omega. The beginning and end. The beginning and end. 1700s, I think. 1735. That's why I think they were built after the church actually was destroyed. A bit of Velcro going on (laughs) as Laura takes out her instrument. So my friend and I used to come and meet halfway between Suffolk and Southend, Mistley Towers. We just looked on a map and we were like, oh, let's go there. (laughs) And then we found that you could get the key. And we came in here and sang some... Hildegard von Bingen, yes. or imp- improvised basically. Yeah. A lot of my stuff is improvised, but based on medieval and folk music. Yeah, we made loads of recordings of just doing weird, echoey things. But it's just so strange. Yes. Why are we in this tower that's not connected to anything and then yeah. there's just water on one side? atmospheric sound yes. and that is that something you've always done or something you've developed over a long um, period? I've developed it probably over the last 10 years since sort of doing more solo work and composing and sort of finding what my voice is on my own partly if I'm honest should I be honest? yes come on um, <laughs> confess 
financial <laughs> because it's completely free to go into churches that are open dawn till dusk. So a way of developing my sound and compositional technique and everything and being on my own and not having to explain myself to like a sound engineer or anyone was to just drive around with my instruments in the car and a Zoom recorder. So I just recently was in Norwich Cathedral and I had it for two hours and there was just the cathedral warden and the church cathedral cat, (laughs) you know, like wandering around. Um, Yeah, and I got to just explore the acoustics for a project I'm doing next year Mm. and I just thought put my Zoom recorder on. So I've got an album coming out that I recorded of that. Yeah, I just like using the space and thinking about all the people that have been inside and all the voices that are unable to be heard. And, you know, a few hundred years ago, women's voices, or even thoughts, um, the only time you really get to sit and be quiet and think on your own would have been when you had to go to church. You know, it's interesting talking about that here because... The idea of the witch hunts was very much about trying to sort of suppress the female perspective and power and voice. Yeah, it's just so crazy, all the things like to do with, you know, witches and brooms and, like, brooms were used to keep their spaces clean, to keep people healthy. I just love the idea of kind of drawing out these, I'm just pointing at the walls, but, like, (laughs) they've heard so much. Where does it go? Is it all stored up? Have you ever been into a space where you've kind of felt very uncomfortable yes. because of the atmosphere? Yes. There's, have you been to Cove Hyde? It's a bit further up the coast, um, near Lowestoft. And it's a church built inside a ruin of a church. So it's kind of got a little, a little medieval church and then just, just a few sort of ruins. Um, but inside there, there's a story about, I think it's a white lady or a lady in white... One time I went in there to do an interview with somebody. Um, we went in there and I was sort of telling her about it. I didn't know anything about the ghost, if there was a ghost. got my violin out and just um, started playing. And then all of our equipment stopped working. So we were like, oh, that's a bit strange. Maybe our batteries have gone. Or... And so then we both like changed the batteries and all our <laughs> devices and everything. And then played again. And I was just sort of playing big, long notes. time I played all of our stuff stopped working and it was all battery powered but it's on a cliff so basically it's I think that the the cliff is eroding it's something crazy like a meter a year or even five meters a year it's completely it's not going to be there for long so then we thought okay well let's not press record I'll just play something and as soon as I started playing there's a, a big door that you know like a massive oak medieval door that went into the bell tower that just started rattling and banging as if someone was banging on it we just packed up and ran away (laughs) but it was the actual spookiest situation I've ever been in yeah somewhere that immediately fills you with a sense of peace and calm um, I really love Raveningham Church which is where I do quite a lot of recording it's on a big country estate so it's almost in their garden it's kind of near where I grew up and my mum and dad still rent their house off the estate so it's kind of like okay. part of the family yeah. but I'm not religious at all so I only really like going when there's no one there 
and if I can just do my own thing. But I just like singing, not necessarily vocally, but singing with the space, with sound. I just like being on my own. But not now, it's, uh, it's lovely no, to be with you too. I just think yeah. it's just really amazing. It's just so magical just to explore the sound, but also in a kind of non-academic way. I just, I don't know, I'm just embracing my ruralness. We're doing as well, yeah. really trying to capture atmosphere and yeah. sort of go on site to see yeah. how somewhere feels as much how as how do you feel in here? Bland. Yeah, almost there isn't much to it, almost because, like we were saying earlier, maybe it was made as a folly rather than do as, you think as so, an actual yeah. purpose. Like but there's a the church, there's a very there's so much energy, however, that energy gives itself, yeah, that you can't help but feel. Like you said, almost like that stone tape. The walls themselves kind of hold the energy of that place. But then it's really strange because is there someone buried here? Under here. Are they proud of the it's history of this mystery? Yeah. Or is it like, because I always feel like it's, it's very much sort of wiped out. I think if you weren't like us actually here yeah. specifically looking, you wouldn't necessarily know. No. I don't think you'd pick up on it, would no, you? No. Every year, I think Amy was saying yesterday, they have a tradition where they'll hide Barbie dolls as witches around the town. Mm-hmm. And the idea then is the children go and find them. But whereas once before, you, they were acting as the, the witch finder. I am finding <gasps> them. Oh whereas God. now they act as the to help the witches to keep them safe. Oh my God, that makes me want to cry. That's so weird. Yeah. What a weird tradition. Yeah, isn't it? They would have burnt them at one point. Melted the, the bodies. Children them and thrown them onto some fire. <laughs> dance with glee. Found uh, <laughs> one. I've got one here. It's one. <laughs> Interesting to see how that, in its way, is folklore. It's continuing. Yeah, that's amazing. A that's tradition. a real. I might have to look into that a bit more. Yeah. A hundred years time would be. Isn't this a strange thing that they do in this little yes. six village? They yeah. hide. Dolls, witches, and find them. This is it. It's recorded. People will refer it's to archived. this. Archived. Archived, didn't they? We wouldn't have ever known that, would we? No. Unless we'd actually it's come stayed, and talked to somebody. The creepy pub. Yeah. 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 Was it creepy? I was a bit creeped out when I first got into bed. I'm in the attic room, and probably very stupidly, I was listening to a quite spooky podcast. Just You're just asking for so trouble. So I did feel, I felt a little bit kind of nervous. There were two cupboard doors in the corners of the room. Yeah. So I'm slightly thinking, is somebody going to pop out? Actually, nothing happened, really. Nothing? Oh. Well, we've still got today. We're in the the B tower. I think the other one is the better tower. Oh. But I'm going to... Shall I play something in this one? And then you'll be able to hear the difference. See if I can get any witching out. Witches. The belief in witches as active personalities belongs, together with the belief in fairies, to bygone generations, but its traces are still with us. On the one hand, there are the old words and phrases, the husks of a once living seed, and on the other hand, the vague superstitious dread of an evil influence, which is nonetheless real and potent because people have ceased to ascribe the dreaded ill luck to witchcraft and the evil eye. Among the plants associated with witches are witch bells, also known as the corn blue bottle, witch's milk, the common mare's tail, witch's needles, the shepherd's needle, witch's knot, 
a bundle of matted twigs which forms on the branches of birches and thorns. So Laura's got her fiddle. Oh, and then yesterday I was just thinking about this, this tune, this Norwegian tune. There was a period in about the 1800s where they burnt all the violins because they're the devil's instrument. So I thought that was appropriate to be thinking about that, just bringing the devil's instrument with me. So maybe you could just explain what overbowing is. It's got this much more sort of, I don't know what like it is, grainy, yeah. edgy sound, which is feels much more of the people. Yeah, it's very, it's kind of got a very ancient medieval sound. Um, so what I've done is I've got a bass viol bow, but you can do it with a, any normal violin bow. And I've taken the pin out of the end so that the, the lump of, of wood is called the frog. So the frog and the stick, which is a very technical term, <laughs> the frog and the stick have been separated. And uh, I've put the hair, Mongolian horsehair, over the top of the strings. So you can play... Uh, two, three, or four strings all together. So it's kind of like a hurdy gurdy, like yes. an ancient wheel fiddle. Um, part of this was I started doing this because of playing on my own. Like I said, like 10 years ago, I just kind of was like, right, what have I actually got inside me <laughs> to say after all of this music going in and under my fingers? And I wanted to see how much I could do just as one person. So, so that makes it fuller. Sound. Just makes it much fuller and means that I can do lots of chords and mm. it's really fun for improvising. And are there many people who do overbowing? No, I found it in a French violin manual. But yeah, I don't. I haven't got anything planned. I'm just going to improvise. Okay, fantastic. Go for it. And I'll just leave a bit of room for your interpretive dance there. Thank you. <laughs> Slightly. And it's a more of a metallic. 
Yeah, so, yeah, there is. I mean, that building is like concrete and brick, but the windows are massive and very old, so I, I wonder how much resonance there is in a little bit rattly window. You can sort of almost see the sound because it's so cold in there as well. And Southwold Lighthouse as well. On the day of the vote for the Brexit vote, oh. and I stood there looking across the sea, saying to myself, "Don't leave us. It's not our fault." Yeah. I think this is just like a lot of classicals. I've got a lot of unlearning that I've had to do, playing a lot of repertoire by male composers because it just mm. wasn't anything really published for the music that I was playing. I'm not a traditional folk fiddle player, but I have, that has all gone in as well. Mm. Well, I guess it's like, you know, life drawing or... Yeah, you learn all the sort of you techniques. You get the basics and the things that people have classically yeah. learnt as a foundation. But yeah. I think it's just that having that space mentally and emotionally and, you know, like coming into buildings, you just have to kind of go, oh, I don't actually need to ask to be able to make my art. <laughs> and these feral lands, volume one. We're waiting for volume oh, two. Well, no, no pressure. On that one. <laughs> no pressure. And this, that happened in COVID, is that right? Yeah. So you yeah. were collaborating with Stuart Lee and yeah. other musicians yeah. and writers. It's a beautiful album. Thank I really, you. really like <laughs> it. Yeah, it's really good. Living in the middle of nowhere, and I know that everybody was, you know, locked in and closed in, and just the things that went silent and the things that became amplified were really strange, I felt. And so I was talking to Stuart Lee about doing things, and he recently found out that his family, because he's adopted and grew up in Shropshire, oh, or Birmingham, right. that yeah. side, <laughs> but yeah. found that his family are from Beckles and Barsha, where I grew up, and so he'd been like looking into a lot of these links. So but, how did you actually physically do it? So would you send a track to the other musicians? Or? I'd stood and was staring out my window looking at a buzzard. <whistles> That's how exciting it was. <laughs> I mean, it was a lovely buzzard. Yeah. We called it, and we called him Majitumbas. And he kept doing, cleaning his wings and doing things like that just on a post outside. We lived on the edge of a farmyard. And I was standing in my house that was too small to play the violin in, <laughs> like this, with my knees bent, and just looking out of the window, and I just stood and did, like, six improvisations. I was feeling a bit lost and a bit like, what do I do? I usually perform. That's what I've done for the last 15 years. Um, and so I just thought, OK, I'll just play for the bird. So then I sent that to Stuart, and then I didn't tell him about the buzzard bit at all. I just said, here's some music. Yeah, he did Barsham Light and the yes. Equinox window. Yeah. I mean, you have to go there. There's one tiny, tiny window that on the Equinox at a certain point, it shines through and glows and makes the, the cross crucifix glow. Yeah. yeah, it's totally amazing. It's a really amazing church as well. Like got a lot of folklore around it. Do we know if that was specifically planned or is yeah, that just something yeah, it was? Yeah, and it's literally called the Equinox Window. It's very it's cool. Yeah, you need to sort of come a little bit up into the Norfolk Suffolk border. <laughs> yeah. next. But we're frightened. There, you are literally in which central? Yeah, we are. Today. Really if we can survive here. Yeah. We can survive anywhere. Yeah. Um, but yeah, then I just sent people things, or they sent me things, and then I did something with them. 
Yeah. So it layered into yeah. becoming the pieces that they were. Yeah, I just really got into sort of layering and mixing and editing. Yeah, I did it all in my kitchen, and yeah. Stuart did his in his basement, and he said his whole family was so pissed off with him because he was doing Black Shuck, his interpretation of Black Shuck, and he was screaming That's like right. the devil dog yes. <laughs> of Bunky. Yeah. And uh, yeah, he said that even though there was no one there, his whole family were just in their house really embarrassed. But he did have to get his son to record it, so he was like a teenager going, Oh my god, don't I like that it's volume one, yeah. dog, dog, dog. Yeah, you've got to do another volume. The gauntlet has been thrown Absolutely. <laughs> okay, well, you have to do something on it then. Oh, absolutely yes. done. Okay, cool. That's that business done. done. And in terms of your own folklore growing up and things around Beckles and the area that you grew up in, did you hear local things yeah. from local people? Yeah. Well, they're just all the kind of normal everyday folklore in your house. Like, Which is? Well... The most obvious one would be the witches and um, sailing away in your boiled eggs shells. Do you know that one? The changeling. I don't know. No. no, this one is like you have to smash your. If you have boiled egg, you have to smash the shell so it can, can't be used as a sailing vessel. So the witches will sail away in it, and that's bad. But I grew up in Hertfordshire. We had a version of that, but I was never told Why? that part. Oh. So it was just like, oh no, you must, yeah. you must break that. But we've, yeah, never, but we've never told why. I was told to smash it because of witches, yeah. but I don't know why the witches were bad. The fungus, known as fairy butter, is also known as witch's butter. And the purple foxglove is sometimes called witch's thimble. When horses break out into a sweat in the stable, they are said to have been hag-ridden. And the tangled locks in their manes are the witch's stirrups. In parts of Surrey and Sussex, a fairy ring is called a hag track. The shoulder bones of a sheep are termed hag bones because formerly witches were believed to ride on them and consequently it was necessary to burn them. The ancient belief that the shells of eggs used by the household were appropriated by the witches for boats is still regarded in practice. The spoon must be thrust through the bottom or the shell crushed to pieces before it is thrown away. So Thomas Brown and his annotators. To break the eggshell after the meat is out, we are taught in our childhood and practice it all our lives. Which, nevertheless, is but a superstitious reliloquy, according to the judgment of Pliny. And the intent hereof was to prevent witchcraft. To keep the fairies out, as they say in Cumberland, lest they perchance might use them for boats, as they thought to sail by night. really on the marshes in a village called Thirlton and then it goes into Norton Subcourse which is where Jennifer Westwood, the folklorist grew up and then returned to just a little bit further down there's the River Yare and so it's really marshy down to there and it gets very misty and um, there's a really famous story about the lantern men which is kind of like marsh gases or below the wisps and there's one there that was from 15 something there's a a reference to it in the churchyard in Thelton as well and um, about one of the wherrymen well all the wherrymen used to come up to the pub and um, one of them had to go back and get something he'd got for his wife or something from the boat and uh, so he went back and then they 
never saw him again because he got drawn in by the lantern man. So there's a very, very close big folklore thing there. Yeah. I was saying to someone the other day, I, I used to have Alexander lessons when I was about 12. I didn't really know what they were, but you know, from posture and music, and it was all a bit weird and creepy, I didn't like it. Anyway, but it was also, I realise now, probably a little bit more creepy because it was in the house that was the pub where the merrymen went. Oh. So like suddenly it was like, oh my God, literally you, living the folklore dream. <laughs> and have you, did you ever see sort of lights on the marshes? No, I never saw lights, but I saw things like when we used to walk home from school, if we went via the village shop and down the back lane, the cows would be in the fields, but with the mist rolling in, you couldn't ever see their feet or legs. <laughs> so there was just these floating and then you said you worked as a researcher on the law of the land. Yeah, I was just checking references in the libraries and because it was a bit early in terms of, the, it was like early 2000s, so in terms of there being loads of research and folklore on the internet, I had to keep ringing up strange people and saying, can you tell me? But that's much more interesting, <laughs> isn't it? It's much more but it did feel really strange. Yeah, so. it's more of an M.R. James type yeah. inquiry. So could you please just confirm that the groaning stone is still there? Yes. You know, without me having to drive to Debenham or wherever it yeah. is. Do you know that one? Groaning stone, Lot to do, haven't you? I, think <laughs> I can hear a song coming out of this. A the piece of music, stone. the groaning, the groaning stone. Definitely. But you're a musician as well, aren't you? Yes. Yeah. I think that might be your track. Okay. I can do groaning. Okay, great. But yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. And did you find that you know once you got sort of inured with folklore that that fed into the music or? Do you know? I just never really thought about it. And it's the same with landscape and my music. I didn't think about it. I just did the music because I was just thinking about trying to express myself and trying to earn a living in the least compromising way yeah. to my mentalness. Yeah, and to keep control of what yeah. you actually do. That's what's so difficult as a creative person. Yeah. You know, as soon as you become part of something that's broadcast or published in some way, yeah. you kind of feel it going away from the, well, that's the thing. specific thing you want to yeah. express. Well, I didn't know what I wanted to express, so I put out this album, Quick Sparrows Over the Black Earth, which was my first solo one, and that was the one where I went to Ravningham Church, and I'd spent maybe, I want to say, like, maybe a year going into the churches and improvising and feeling really uncomfortable, actually, even on your own. <laughs> because, you know, you're not a religious person. Did you yeah. feel like going into some of these spaces there was a sense of sort of judgement? Well, yeah, I obviously felt a little bit concerned about people wandering in as well, but then I soon realised that nobody really goes no. <laughs> to some of those rural churches. So they would probably be delighted to They were, that. actually, and when, when I saw people, or if I was doing like a recording for an album or something, I would put money in the collection box because I felt like you know I've had this space and I wanted to put something back I didn't really have an idea about what I was doing until I started getting reviews in which is kind of weird so people kept associating everything I did with the landscape and I wasn't sure if that's just because I said I'm from Norfolk or if it really sounded like that there's a lot of air and there's yeah. a lot of sort of in, in playing as you've just played for us you yeah. know, it creates the sort of sense of air breathing yeah. atmosphere and space yeah. you know so yeah. you're listening you're imagining 
Like exactly, that. and I think so. It was. Yeah. It's just in there, yeah. and I think probably not deciding that was a really good thing, and just. I think it's always interesting when people interpret what you've done. Yeah, and so then cool. See something that you hadn't perceived. I've often played that album, and I always have it as my soundtrack of driving through London yeah. at night. But even though there's a part of me that goes, yes, it's landscape and blasted land yeah. and grey skies, and it's got an element of that. Yeah. But actually going through a cityscape and the most urban landscape yeah. you can think having something like that completely changes what the environment yeah. looks like and your place in it travelling through it as well oh that's brilliant because that's the thing it's like I'm not trying to be this sort of whimsical folky person I am here now and I'm very much trying to make something out of the fragments and the folklore that make up me you know we're all made up of all these things that are our rituals and our own personal folklores you know I can remember whole concertos from doing recorder and they're there so sometimes you kind of have to be careful what you put in and have you ever recorded in the open air in different sort of actual landscapes a little bit I did something with Charles Haywood, the drummer. There's a, like, a little beach on the Thames. There's lots of little beaches on there. Mm. And we did this thing between two walls. Um, and it was really echoey. And there were people like, on the other side of the Thames listening and clapping at the end because we had like, a full drum kit and, yeah. and I had my double recorders there. But no, that's interesting, actually. At the minute, I've got a sound walk that I've curated and it's got 12 musicians. So I sent photos of this landscape in South Norfolk. And they all responded to it, and now for the next, I think it's of three more weekends, um, they're all sort of embedded in the landscape. So you get the sound of them and their piece that's responding to the, what it looked like in the summer, and, and them imagining what it would be like now. This is in Raveningham. So my mum and dad, <laughs> um, <laughs> they live in this place, tiny, tiny village, but they're antique dealers. So I've always grown up with old things. So there's always people around and always weird stories and, oh, oh yeah, that's normal just to have a sedan chair in the front garden, you know. So there's all this kind of stuff. But then my sister is an artist and a curator and she puts on this Ravnum sculpture trail. So it has like 60 artists every summer. And so I thought, I wonder what a sound one would be like. Mm. And so that's what I've just got on now for November. And I've got people like Laurie Goldston, who was the cellist with Nirvana on MTV Unplugged. Turns out she's from here. She's from nearby. She's just checked her ancestors, and they're from near Beckles as well. So we've got a little something weird. Well, it is on a ley line. Isn't that the place on the latest census that has the most satans? Yeah, because they all decided to put that. And then all these people kept coming and trying to convert everyone of Bungie, lots of religious people. Because oh it went in the Daily Mail, they were like, oh, we can't have that. That's absolutely outrageous. It was like 40 people, like, as a joke, just put Satan. And it's now Bungie is like the centre. The epicentre <laughs> of Hellsborn. Yeah, but you'll like it. Have you been to Bungie before? No. Because there's a medieval banqueting hall called the Three Tons, which is really seriously haunted. Great. And it's got a minstrel's gallery in it. And when I was just after 17. I used to play in medieval banquets. It was really un PC and awful. Yeah. But for me, I learned loads of medieval music and I got to wear a fun dress. Shall we go in the other one? Yeah, yeah. so we're going to go across to the other misty tower.
Also in Bungie, they found loads of um, skulls under the floorboards, or skulls, which were put there to oh, kind yes. of help with the resonation, resonating. Yes. Does that do that? Apparently, because yeah. you know, if you think about singing and stuff, you know. I think that's in the Brian Hoggard's book. Our first sort of trip was up to Worcester to a little St. Swithin's church. Oh, yeah, yeah. And Brian Hoggard is this sort of expert in witch marks. Well, I've got a witch mark in the bedroom I grew up in as well. Oh. Like burns in the... Taper um, burns. Yeah. Yes. As you do. But yeah. at the time I was just like, oh, that's where I keep my books and my secret tobacco. Because <laughs> I'm a teenager. <laughs> oh, <I don't> <laughs> yeah. That's black shark country as well, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, it is, okay. yeah. Um, St Mary's Church is where he was supposed to have killed people. Is that the so one with marks, marks on the door? Yeah, so black shark claw marks where That's they trapped him in the church. Yeah. The door kind of served in the church and people yeah. were in it or something in there. Yeah. yeah, sounds good. Um, a mouth like a purse Ooh. or something, like a leather purse. Never seen any strange dogs. No, well, I'm from Norfolk originally, so we've got the Norfolk Puma. It's a whole different thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like a beautiful bobbin. Yeah, the, exactly. Yeah. So we're in Tower 2, or A, which is a bit different, actually. Yes, it is. It's got a high ceiling without any kind of Alpha Omega Freemason marks. So there's probably a slightly different sound. But it's actually darker in here. It does yeah. feel... It's this, more oppressive. This feels, yeah, far more oppressive than the other one. This is more M.R. James yeah. something's yeah. buried here. It definitely. Maybe this is it's where... It's like Count Magnus. Or maybe, do you think Matthew, Matthew Hopkins, Hopkins might be below... It is extraordinary to think he is buried in this very ground. Yes, it is. Such a lot to answer for. Like, why did he start? What happened? He was just a young man, a young, sort of quite handsome man, who decided, this is what I'm going to do. Do you think he was a performer and he had no outlet? Maybe. And he just really needed audience. (laughs) You know, the woodcut, he's very prevalent in that very famous woodcut. He's the biggest figure in the middle of the picture flamboyantly dressed with a big hat and that doesn't look very puritanical. No, he's not like a modest man. No. And then bought this inn which seems odd as well. He bought the inn. He owned the inn. And lived there. Yeah. (gasps) But he died very young. He died at 26. He packed it in. Packed a lot in. It was essentially three years of witch finding. Yeah. And people employed him as well, so people actually, instead of him just coming to a place like this... Do so you think they were like, oh, people, God, she's really annoying, can you... I absolutely think that. That vendetta, okay, yeah. right, well, in that case, you've been nothing but troubled for me and my family, yeah. I'm going to bring bit in... Bit of a mouthy lady. I'm going to bring in the witch finder and see how you like oh it. Oh, my God. Imagine that. And whole communities doing it as well. That whole idea of the swimming of the witch, we were discussing it the other day, is it's not just being thrown in by a mob. These are all people you knew. Yeah. These are people that have picked you out and deliberately taking you to a river and tied you up and pushed you in. Yeah. Baying for you. I mean, it's horrendous. Oh, yeah. Horrendous. It's, it's so frightening to think of actually what that must yeah, have Yeah, the reality. Taken from your home, stripped, searched, pricked with mm. yeah. needles, interrogated, kept up without any sleep, imprisoned in dark rooms, and then kind but of taken can, to... Yeah. Ponds and literally drowned or mm. 
made to yeah. suffer before you were then possibly tried and hanged. In the witch trials in Salem, the first one was from Norwich, the first of the woman. Oh, yeah. And she was tied up outside the Guildhall, there's a big hoop there still, and then marched down to Lollard's Pit where she was killed as a, with the Lollards, just across the river in, in, Norwich. in Norwich. Yeah, from near where the marketplace is. It's like the Guildhall is the original town hall and it was one of the earliest parliaments. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah, there was another one that moved over there as well, but they were both married to the same man, like, mm-hmm. at different times, and his wives both got tried as witches. But it's just insane, I'm doing a project in, in the Guildhall at the minute, and then just the idea that you're going through this door past the mm-hmm. ring where somebody was... No, just everything's too close, it's too close. It is, once you stay Even though it's centuries, yeah. it's still yeah. not that many people no. behind us, is it? Well, the Missley Thorn is where he did his... Interrogating allegedly where that building is is where he would have brought oh his God. victims in to sit in front of him and accuse or prick or do whatever in that building in your bedroom in my bedroom. No, no. <laughs> well, we don't know. We don't know. Just trying to freak Tim out before we went to bed. It was, it was definitely, definitely. It was, you see where your chair is. is. That's the exact site. Clusters of souls in this room. Anyway, good night. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, the Nisley Thorn now is very modern in decor and it's yeah, but they very can't plush. Paint over it, can they? But no, there's only so it's much paint. Yeah. <laughs> so, are we going to, we're going to have so we? a double recorder. Yeah, yeah. why not? Power beam. Yeah. What's, what's the inspiration, do you think, for this? I don't know. It's just really creepy. It is I do creepy. find this one creepy, yeah. Tombstones kind of propped against the walls. Caleb Candler, I think. Mm-hmm. That would be creepy if it had my turn. That would, that would. Yeah, work. let's just not look too no. close. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Feels a lot bigger than it is, doesn't it? Does. It does. It really does. Delay, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. But yeah. normally it's these. Like it Does it have it? Does it have a But it's kind of like. Instead of that, going up to the second note, it's the second note is just slightly flattened. <sighs> so every time you come to it in whatever it is that you're playing, that interval yeah. gives it a slightly different. Feel doesn't it? Yeah, I don't when really you, when you it. notice it. There is there is a definite yeah. aural thing that kind of draws you. Yeah, totally. to that flat sound. Yeah, 
and it's just slightly flatter. And, and the thing is with doing two recorders together, you can't do all of the fingers that you would normally do, so it gives it a different... Um, even though they're sort of in tune with each other, they're not really equal temperament like Bach liked, where everything was measured out equally on the keyboard. Mathematically. Yeah. Yeah. I'll try and get a devil's interval in there. I don't know if I can. We hear knocking on the door while we're playing. Are you going to run away? Scratching at the door. Just don't leave me. Scratching at the door. Don't leave me. And this style of playing is double style of playing. Is yeah. this, this is an old style? Do you know the Greek god... Do you know the Greek god... I was um, going to say Aulos. Aulos, yeah. yeah. And that's a double reeded instrument. So it's got one mouthpiece and it's a bit like a... I think it's got like a capped, an oboe reed, like a double reed in the top. Um, and it's got two pipes that come off it. So there are lots of early pictures and stones etchings and things yeah. that were double things. So, and I don't know if you played the recorder at school, but the original yeah. make was Aulos. Yeah, playing two together like this, people do and have done, but it's kind of based on that stuff. But I learnt it in my third year of my undergrad at music college. I had to do a piece by Louis Andreessen, who's a Dutch composer, and he wrote this piece called End um, in 1981. And it's for two recorders, one player. And it, I can't remember how it went, really, but it was like... Oh, I can remember a bit. But I had to spend a long time in a basement practice room trying to make my hands move in different directions, yeah. like playing the piano but on the recorder. Almost like a Philip Glass. Yeah, exactly. It was like a minimalist. It was quite hard, but I just really love that I can do more than one person's. Yeah. You know, well, the like same with the overbowing, it gives the sound yeah. of more than one person in a way. Yeah, it's like my. And then my, with your reverb and echo. Exactly. I'm bringing everyone in, I'm just getting all the help sound. I can. Yeah. <laughs> it's like minimalist chamber music for one. that music it sounds so ancient yet so modern 
positioning myself there and driving through a city and you go, yeah. that absolutely suits the soundscape of a city yeah. but it's also very ancient yeah. like you could be standing in a blasted church on a heath during the civil war and you go that would probably be it would fit there and as it well. would fit there as yeah. well and I find that shift really interesting it changes with landscape it can change and there's some music that is yeah. very much of a time and place yeah. and it will take you back to that but that sound for some reason wants to shift yeah. and move and change environment there's a treatise on record playing from 1532 and it says in, in the introduction, it's by Silvestro Ganassi for anybody that wants to look it up, and it says in the introduction that playing the recorder is a bit like looking at a painting. It, you've got everything there except the breath in a painting and with the recorder you've got everything there except the words. And I think in words, so even though I don't really like singing words, when I'm playing quite often it's just very conversational and, and if I think of a sentence or a passage or something I'll just keep playing that in, in that different ways and I guess it's that Baroque thing as well isn't it, in never saying the same thing twice I want to be between things as soon as I feel like it sounds like something I'm like okay I don't want to be there I need it to be this other thing for me that's absolutely its power is that it, it shifts and changes like a season or a tide and it can fit into these different yeah. things or it's an opposite and those two opposites sit together really well and you can kind of view it differently and that's what I always have loved about it. The stuff that works best is the stuff that I never know what I'm doing mm. until I've made it. The entrance to the vault was a track that I did on the Quick Sparrows over the Black Earth, the one that you drove through London with. That was because I spent all this time working on this music and taking fragments of medieval stuff and from the 5th to the 14th century and I was like really proud of myself. So I had this whole folder full of material that I was going to record and I planned my recording day and I took myself down to the church and drove down with my instruments and I'd forgotten the folder and all the music and everything. So that whole album was just sort of half-remembered things and the very first track was completely and utterly just because I looked down and there was a, a standing on a stone and it said entrance to the vault and then that opened up the rest of the album and the rest of the music. The difficult thing often for any creative artist is sort of opening a channel. As you get older and older, I think you also put more barriers, criticisms of your own work and things that you kind of make more difficult in mm. freeing something channeling into you. So it's very difficult to sort of say, I'm going to let something happen. Also, the more performing you do and the more situations you're in, you can then think, okay, I'm making this thing. You're not making it to fit somewhere, but you've got experience of where it might fit. And so then it's really hard to get rid of the memories of standing on a stage performing yeah. a certain type of thing and really just have to completely wipe it and then try and make it from the purest place. Going into different environments is almost your way maybe of triggering a new mm, It's my practice of exactly that. Cleans, cleansing the yeah, It's like contagious magic isn't it as well? Is it sympathetic magic or contagious, you know, where something's filled with something else? It's sympathetic it's when you do a, a form of magical spell that is sympathetic to that thing but it isn't of that thing. Exactly that's what it is. As ill as a witch is a phrase from Cheshire meaning very ill. As false as a Pendle witch is a saying which keeps on record the traditional association of Pendle Forest with witches. It was there that the old custom called latting or seeking the witches used to be observed on All Hallows' Eve, the night when the witches were said to meet in the forest. 
Lit candles were carried about the hills from 11 to 12 o'clock. If the witches failed to extinguish a light, the bearer was safe from their power for the season. But if a light went out, it portended great evil. Persons, or things under the supposed influence of witchcraft or the evil eye, were formerly said to be blinkered, a word which still remains in East Anglia, in the sense of it being soured, spoiled, or used for beer. The very common word, wished, meaning unlucky or uncanny, is in no doubt originally wished, i.e. ill-wished or bewitched. The term overlooked, overseen, or overshadowed was certainly used in their original sense of bewitched as late as the last two decades of the 19th century. The last witness said decreased had been overshadowed by someone. A writer in today's Times, February 21st, 1912, regards the belief in this form of witchcraft as still current. We still hear of people in remote villages who complain of being overlooked and who actually pine away under the belief that a spell has been cast upon them. Do you feel that sometimes your music are, are like spells, in as much as when someone creates a spell, it may work, it may not work, but when it does work, then it evokes something. There's a lot of things in your music, I feel, that kind of bring things out, so it's like an evocation of a, a time or a place. Maybe. I mean, I've never really sort of accessed it from that point of view, from a kind of, am I a witch? <laughs> you know, all of those sorts of things. Every single thing that makes it on to a record or live is through a process of improvisation and really just finding the really golden bits and I know instantly if I can live with it also when I perform I never play in exactly the same way twice I mean I'm not trying to recreate a composition in the same way and I think that's my kind of unlearning of classical stuff where I just got so nervous and anxious about playing the right notes I'm just thinking of performing Shakespeare for instance which has to be done with precision because of the language yeah but, you know, then you do see performers like Mark Rylance and people who are channeling something different. Mm. He's yeah. almost opened yeah. an energy, and he said it himself, that he can't perform a Shakespeare play or a character in the same way. He, every night he feels something else oh, channeling wow. through him. The language will be the same. Yeah. And has to be. But it's that, isn't it? It's getting to the point where you trust in yourself that you can do the thing, Yeah. Mm. and then you get to have personality and feelings and freedom and I think it's there's a long time in any kind of creativity where you feel like there's a right way and a wrong way to do it with classical music you never talk about personality because it's not about you it's about playing the instrument correctly but then when you get to like soloists and people it's how they do it it's all about the emotional content most people aren't yeah exactly uh, music's all emotion. That's all we want, yeah, it's just feelings. That's what we trade in, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Like with Shakespeare, yeah. for instance, the number of times you hear a certain speech and you go, oh, you've paused here, yeah. to be or not to be. And people will go, to be, pause, even though there's no comma, but yeah. people will do yeah. it. Or not to be, put a question mark in, there's no question yeah. mark there. Yeah. That is the question. You know, it's how you break yes. it up and that repetition of, where does it sit with me? Where's the truth of it for me?
Hildegard von Bingen. So she was a 12th century nun and mystic and poet and composer and herbalist and everything. And she had these visions, and one of them was the fiery spirit. Um, and I just took like two notes from that. And then also there was a misprint in the translation from the original score, which I then included because I thought it was a note. Yeah, and actually being sent to a nunnery because she was having visions or... But she probably, like, had ep- epilepsy or something. If she'd been poor, she wouldn't have made it, you know, but she was looked after in terms of being somewhere safe and she had the freedom and the space and the acoustics and a really big hurdy-gurdy. So that accompanied loads of the singing and everything she wrote was for women to sing. It takes us almost full circle back to the witches and the opposite experience, in a way. Being poor being unwell, not having enough to eat, probably being widowed or being separated from their husbands in the civil war. Having your own thoughts. Having your own thoughts. Feelings, visions. Not necessarily wanting to hear what those thoughts might be or knowing that people are coming to access medicine or cures or midwifery from women. You don't get many upper class or higher class, middle class witches. John Dee, for instance, would be the most highest status wizard, if you Mm. like. There were a couple, but they had to be within the courts. But then there were cunning men in Essex who had land, who had horses, who earned huge amounts of respect and money. But that, again, is a man. But they had power. But they did. People with the least are the ones that are persecuted the most. Well, it's the same. Nothing changes. I did a a talk the other night about um, my zine, my new zine, (laughs) Marsh Law, which is half real, half imagined. Um, But they were saying, you know, why do you think people are really interested in folklore? It feels like there's a real resurgence at the moment, especially that there's. And my kind of thoughts on that were because we need to know things will move forward. We need to know it's not going to stay the same forever and it never has stayed the same. You know, it gives us some comfort, but it gives us some... It gives us stories. It gives us, even if we're alone or have no family or anything, we've got this idea of ancestors and being connected. Well, roots are very important. It's interesting that people in America, Canada, they want to reconnect with Scottish ancestors. They want to find out where does my blood come from. Yeah. Do you think there's a freedom in folklore in the fact that it is so malleable? It's unlike a piece of classical music or classical text. It it kind of wants you to manipulate it because it changes with what goes on outside in the political sphere and the world we live in. Yeah. Folklore rises, certain stories become more prevalent, and then as the world as we know it changes, they drop down and others come up. 
yeah. And others, they kind of bubble yeah. all, all the time to the surface, ones we've forgotten about, ones that have just been slightly rechanged, or a different version of this and that. But like with Jennifer Westwood, she was a serious academic folklorist, and she would go as far back and across and get every source possible to get the actual real version of where all of the stories emanated from. Mm. She would be like, oh, that one's just made up. Yeah. But they're all made up. They're all made up. They're all stories. <laughs> but they're all based on something. Yeah. That representation changes. Like we were looking into um, knuckers, into sea dragons. Mm-hmm. And then the interpretation of, you could either take it as being, it's a real thing, it's a dragon, or it might be a large eel, or could be, in certain times of political upheaval, this could be Catholicism, or it could be Protestantism, and they are just merely symbols yeah. of what that is through a story. So it's, it's how that lends constantly and changes all the time. It's never really what it actually says it is. Yeah, like the Hitler Youth, the recorder was the instrument of the Hitler Youth, so it went a little bit out of fashion. Yeah, so in marches and stuff, they would all learn, they all learn the recorder, and until it came over here with Dolmetsch in the early 1900s, Karl Dolmetsch, and then he started getting it produced as a mass instrument. But, you know, nobody talks about these instruments that everybody learnt at primary school as being the instrument of the Nazi youth. Yeah, yeah that's true. Or Hugo Boss designing the Nazi uniforms. Oh, really? Yeah, Hugo Boss designed the Nazi uniforms. And there's another very famous one, the guy that designed the V2 rockets. Basically, he designs kitchenware. It's someone, it's a really, really well-known name. So he designed the rockets for the Nazis, yeah. came over to America to help work on that space system. And then once that all kind of finished, moved into home economics and made millions and millions. So there's so many things, like the Beetle being the, the Beetle car, the Volkswagen Beetle being Volkswagen. the car of the people. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, that was a Nazi yeah. Yeah. Went to India about 25 years ago to temples where the swastika is, you know, outside the temples. Yeah. And it's such a strange, uncomfortable thing. Well, the oh. swastika is an Indian symbol. Yeah, because my dad yeah. sells Persian carpets. Sometimes you see, like, in the warehouses and mm. from the dealers, that, you know, they've got... It's the, a symbol of the, infinity, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. The front covers of um, Kipling's books had a swastika, but it's worth saying that they are reversed, so the Indian swastika is the uh, opposite yeah. way But it's really hard to see insignia. that if you see it. An Indian friend director that I was working with came over and gave me this gift of these coasters and they were the swastikas. You know? Yeah. And I did take them and then we just said, we can't possibly draw. ever <laughs> have these on this bridge. We never did a party with this. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so it's appropriation of other yeah. cultural symbols and other folklore and spiritual beliefs that change constantly. Everything is in flux and is yeah. available for some purpose. Yeah, and hopefully, apart from the swastika part hopefully that can sort of give us an amount of hope and positivity about sharing these stories and bringing all of our traditions together and and talking about them on that bombshell (laughs) we will go and find a coffee yeah that'd be lovely it's getting quite chilly it's freezing it's like we've put ourselves in a mausoleum essentially we are so we're going to leave the Missley Towers in search of caffeine Folklands was created, written and presented by Tim Downey and Justin Chubb.
with music by Justin. Special thanks to Laura Cannell, whose latest recording, Midwinter Processionals, was released earlier this month. Thanks for listening.